the title of the message in your outline, The Unfaithful Tenants and God's Conviction Notice. And we've all heard awful stories about nightmare tenants who have totally abused their rental privileges. But today's account in Mark 12 is literally one for the ages. Please open your Bibles to Mark 12 if you haven't already done so. Those who have been with us know that in our current context, Jesus is in the middle of the Passion Week, and he is just but a few days away from dying on the cross. He is currently engaged in a heated conversation with a delegation from the Sanhedrin that we learned last week was a representation of the highest religious council of the nation of Israel, which Mark eleven twenty seven states involved the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And they have shown up to challenge Christ's authority, which is a bad idea for anyone, because Christ's authority stands undefeated over the test of time. And last week we learned that Christ's authority confronts religious pride. It exposes the rejection of the truth, and it humbles those who reject it. Now Jesus is going to share a parable that will indict the Sanhedrin for their failed leadership to Israel. And this is what he's going to say, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower, and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. And he had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's, it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him. And went away. Pray with me. Father, we bow our heads right now as a church family, excited and eager to rally around your word. We pray for the guidance and superintendence of your Holy Spirit to help us to see this passage with greater clarity. I pray, Father, for a protection on my lips that I would not misspeak or mishandle your word. Help us to cut it straight. Help us to interpret it accurately. Help us to apply it to our hearts and consider the truths that Jesus shares in this parable so that we'll be changed and be impacted. 
We commit this time to you. We look forward to seeing how you affirm it. In Christ's name, we pray. Well, just a few words about parables before we begin. This is the only major parable in the Gospel of Mark outside of the parable of the soils that we studied all the way back in Mark chapter 4. And so the unique placement of this parable should draw our attention so that we see its significance. It is a story of Israel's leader's rejection of the Son of God depicted in the terms of tenant farming. And it's recast in Old Testament imagery that we're going to see. And to grasp its significance, there are a few principles for us to keep in mind when it comes to parables. First, parables were given to meet a specific need within a specific context. In this case, it is for the unbelieving Jewish leaders, and it serves as a parable of judgment. Yes, this parable allows us to see the mercy and grace of God. Yes, it allows us to see his plan of redemption to include the Gentiles. But the thrust of the passage focuses on judgment, specifically judgment of Israel's leaders. Second, Jesus typically used parables, as you know, to mask spiritual truths so that they would be hid from uh, those who were unbelieving. But in this instance, this parable was understood by unbelievers, as verse 12 indicates for us. They understood he had spoken the parable against them, which he did. Thirdly, parables are true to life stories. They could really happen. They're not just allegories. And therefore, every part doesn't necessarily have to have spiritual meaning. I share this because some have tried to spiritualize this text and propose different symbolic meanings. meanings. Uh, For example, the wall, the vat, and the tower uh, that's mentioned in verse 1, people have read into this. And this only distorts the true meaning and purpose of the parable. So we want to avoid this error. Fourthly, parables typically have punchlines or conclusive statements that carry the weight or the purpose of the parable. The punchline of this parable comes in verse 9 and reveals that God will destroy the rulers of Israel for their unfaithfulness and rejection of their own Messiah. It's with these principles in mind that I outlined our study in a simple fashion. We're going to look at three aspects of God's judgment against the leaders of Israel for rejecting Christ and his authority. Three aspects of God's judgment against the leaders of Israel for rejecting Christ and his authority, which we'll call the parable, the punchline, and the postscript. First, let's do our best to understand what's being taught in the parable, which is really a story about unfaithful tenants. And to do this, we're going to look at two different perspectives. We'll consider the agricultural perspective, and then we'll look at the spiritual perspective perspective, and these are in your outline. The, the agricultural perspective is fairly simple to see as Jesus, again, draws from the soil and the experience of everyday life in Palestine. Verse 1 describes a man who planted a vineyard. He built a hedge or a wall around the vineyard to keep wild animals out, and he dug a, a wine vat or a depression, usually made out of rock, 
to collect the juice that would be harvested from the grapes. Specifically, the grapes grown in the vineyard, right? Although, I guess, if you wanted to, people could uh, bring grapes from other vineyards, and they could use a vat or a wine press um, and, and transport them over. He also built a tower so that a watchman might keep a diligent eye on the vineyard so that it would be protected from thieves, people who would want to jump the hedge and go in and eat some yummy grapes, or perhaps, who knows, maybe load up on those grapes and go sell them to other people. And of course, this, again, protected them from wild animals as well who might try to eat grapes. The tower also served as a shelter for the workers and a place where tools and other farming resources would be stored. Preparing a vineyard took a tremendous amount of time. And in most instances, years were involved in the process. Leviticus 19, verses 23 through 25, lets us know that it was in the fourth year that the fruit was devoted to the Lord, and that a farmer would not use the fruit for personal consumption until the fifth year. That's some time, right? It's not like uh, plant it this spring, eat it at harvest time at the end of the summer. And this helps us understand the devotion and the commitment that the owners had to these properties. Now, if they didn't live close, it was common for them to lease a property out, specifically a vineyard in this instance, to, um, they would be an absentee farmer, and they would lease it out to vine growers or to tenants. However, in order to retain legal rights to the property, the owner had to receive produce from the tenants. And anywhere from a quarter all the way up to uh, half the produce might be required. And this functioned almost as a form of, of rent. In our parable, the owner placed his vineyard into the hands of men assigned to farm it, and then he left it in their care, and he would return at harvest to collect his share of the produce. And if he was a wealthy man, well, he probably wasn't going there to carry the, the wagon or the, the, the wheelbarrow. He was sending servants to, to go pick it up. This is how the system worked. And everyone who could hear the Lord's voice was familiar with how a leased vineyard operated. Well, there's also a spiritual perspective and background embedded deep within this parable that cannot be missed. Jesus intentionally tells a story about a vineyard because both vineyards and vines and fig trees, which we've learned, were national symbols of Israel. Isaiah 5-7 alludes to both when it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. When we recently studied the cursing of the fig tree in Mark 11, we noted several examples of this, and the nearness of the context ties these two accounts together. The fig tree reflected the, the fruitless or the barren worship, right, of Israel. You recall that in our study. And so now Jesus is using a vineyard to target the leaders of Israel specifically. Two things captured my attention when I was studying this passage this week. First was the tremendous amount of history that this single parable involves as we look at uh, the landscape of scriptures and, and, and God uses this to, to, to teach us. 
And the second it's, is this. It's absolutely stunning to see how precise the Lord Jesus Christ is when he tells this parable to, to reflect certain people, including himself. The precision is absolutely remarkable. In your outline, I provided an interpretive key with five elements from this story that are listed for you, and we'll just read through them real quick. The vineyard owner represents God the Father. The vineyard represents Israel. The tenants, or vine growers, represent the leaders of Israel. The slaves represent God's messengers. And of course, number five, the beloved son represents Christ. Well, just a few words on each of these so that we can see this parable with greater depth. God the Father is the vineyard owner. And we see him represented as a man in verse 1 and as an owner in verse 9. And you can see that without him, the vineyard would have never existed. The vineyard is his creation and property. And he reserves the right to do whatever he pleases with it, just as Psalm 24.1 affirms, right? The earth is the Lord, all it contains, right? He owns it so he can sell it, he can trade it, he can rent it, and yes, if he should decide, he could even destroy it. Yet God in his mercy loved Israel. Fitting that we sang those songs that just carried that remnant of, of love. God had an, an affection for Israel, and he has an affection for the church. God had tenderly raised up his vine in a land called Egypt. And then he had taken that vine, and he had transported it across the burning sands of the Sinai, and he had planted it in Canaan. And there it took root, and there it flourished. And God had given his vine a good land in which to grow and to become a vineyard. And he had given it his word. He had given it his protection. By God's own testimony, he had done everything that he, he, he could have done to ensure the success of his vineyard called Israel. And he even says this directly in Isaiah chapter 5. And I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah 5 so you can see this. It is the Old Testament parable that Jesus quotes in the opening verses. And here the prophet Isaiah writes this when speaking of the Lord starting in Isaiah 5.1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved and a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewed out a wine vat in it. And then he expected it to, to, expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. If you have the ESV, it actually says wild grapes there, which again is a reflection of the rebellion. But the Hebrew word literally means stinking or worthless. Look at verses 3 and 4. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Stop here for a moment. Here God extends an invitation to the people to judge between him, judge the equity between him and Israel, him and the vineyard. It's an invitation to them to look 
at the faithfulness of both sides. Look at verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? Again, the same word right there in the Hebrew translated worthless. And the answer to these questions, we already know, and so did Israel. It wasn't because of God being unfaithful, but judgment fell upon their shoulders. And so the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, the delegation from the Sanhedrin, their ears are burning as Jesus quotes this judgment from Isaiah. They knew it well, and in a strange twist of irony, they were surrounded by visible vines as the vineyard represents Israel, which is number two on the list. Remember, Jesus is speaking to them from the temple. More than likely, he was in the court of the Gentiles, standing underneath one of the giant colonnades that we talked about before that protected them from the elements. And he's teaching from there. And over one shoulder would have been the Mount of Olives, which the entire mountainside would have been covered with grapevines. And then over the other shoulder would have been the temple that Herod built. And on that temple door, there was actually um, a vine that was, was grafted, a huge and magnificent grapevine, which was embellished with leaves of pure gold and silver. And the grapes that hung down on it were made out of precious jewels and gemstones. Often, wealthy Jews would add another expensive leaf or another precious gemstone to that vine. And the Jewish leaders have no doubt about what the Lord is talking about in this parable so far. Both the vineyard owner and vineyard are unmistakable at this point. And third on our list are the vine growers or tenants, depending on your English translation. That's a word that could also be rendered farmers. And these are the confirmed renters in our parable. They are represented in every single verse, from verse 2 all the way to verse 9. And they are the ones whom Jesus is featuring in this parable. And it will serve us again to just uh, review these verses if you turn back to Mark 12, if you're you're not there. Starting in verse 2, it says this, and I want you to see the focus. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. Verse 3, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4, again, he sent them, another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. Verse 6, he had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him, last of all, to them, saying, they will respect my son. Verse 7, but those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Verse 8, they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. After reading it with that emphasis, and that was intentional, there's no question about who this parable is about. So how do you think the leaders to whom Jesus is speaking are responding at this point. Got any good guesses? 
Let me help you. Right now, they are applauding Jesus. Right now, in this moment, they're applauding Jesus because they do not yet see themselves as the tenants. And you might say, well, how do you know that? And I will show you when we get to the punchline. But just before we move on, just a quick word of introduction about the servants and the son. Numbers 4 and 5 on our list. The servants or slaves, again, depending on your translation, represent God's messengers. And these messengers, of course, represent all of God's calls to Israel. And we've seen, as we survey the Old Testament, they came in many different forms. They, they, they came in judges that were, uh, in the form of judges that were established. They came in the form of pious kings who were ordained and allowed to reign. But most notably, it represents the prophets. Just as we read in Isaiah 5-4, God the Father did everything that he could possibly do. He sent faithful messenger after faithful messenger to warn Israel and her leaders of their rebellion and waywardness. We know from many biblical accounts that throughout history, the prophets were often cruelly mistreated. And I got some scripture references for you that um, share this, just in case you, you're interested. You can look them up at, at a later point. We won't have time to chase them uh, right now. Besides general statements like Second Chronicles 36.16 or Nehemiah 9.26, we find particular instances described in Second Chronicles 24.21, in Jeremiah 26.7 and 8, in Jeremiah 32.2, Jeremiah 38, 4-6. But our Lord, later in this same week, makes very strong statements on this point in Matthew 23, verses 29-37, when he lists out the several woes to Israel's leaders. And listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 29-37 about their treatment of the prophets. It is a vivid description. 23, chapter 23 of Matthew, verse 29, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets. That's remarkable. You're responsible. You're the one who builds their tombs and adorn the monuments of the righteous. Jesus is saying they're the ones righteous and you're the ones that are building their tombs. And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves, because they know that's not true, and so does Jesus. That you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Verse 34, therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And this is actually even a prophecy of what's going to take place, right, with the apostles as they're going to be the sent ones sent out and they're going to receive you know, even more persecution. And he says this, verse 35, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, 
whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now that's, this is radical. And it's like, well, they weren't responsible, but what Jesus is saying, they're associated and their hearts are the same with collectively all of the leadership of Israel that responded to the prophets in this way. And this generation is going to be judged. And all of this leads to the infamous lament that Jesus shares in verse 37, which will be familiar to you. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. This was the reality. And the details of the parable point to the treatment of God's messengers getting worse and worse. And all of this is on the heels of John the Baptist, who the Lord Jesus Christ used as an example of authority and righteousness. And you know how John's story ended. He was beheaded. Who is left to send? What more could the vineyard owner possibly do after we're talking of centuries, right? That history, again, that's embedded within, it's staggering. Centuries. What more could he do? The vineyard owner decides to send his son. The pinnacle of the narrative comes here in verse 6, which says, He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. Not ironically, the word beloved here also means only and serves as a direct reference to God the Father's uh, word selection when he spoke of Jesus at his baptism back in Mark 1.11, saying, this is my beloved son. Again, at Jesus's transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, he uses those same words, this is my beloved son, even adds a command at the transfiguration for, for those who are present. Listen, listen to him. And now you might be tempted to think, what owner or parent in their right mind would surrender his son to such tenants? Right? I mean, aren't we all just kind of, don't you want to scratch that itch just a little bit? It is a fair question. James Edwards shares this insight. According to Jewish law, a son possessed legal rights that a slave did not. Thus the son is the heir. In sending the servants, the owner appealed to the integrity of the tenants. In sending his son, he appeals to the right of the law. For the son was the only person, save himself, who possessed legal claim over the vineyard. And this is why the owner says, they will respect my son. The son goes as the father's representative with the father's authority to the father's property to claim the father's due, end quote. And of course, we understand the legal aspect of Christ's coming was to fulfill all righteousness and the legal aspect of justification through the gospel that could only be fulfilled by the Son of God. 
And it's remarkable, again, even how this is embedded, right, within this parable. The sending of the Son underscores the serious view the owner of the vineyard took of the situation. The owner assumed that they would respect him. Instead, the greedy tenant's evil desire saw a golden opportunity for seizing the property. By sending the son, the tenants assumed that the father must be dead. If they did away with, the, with his son, the property would be ownerless and therefore available to the first claimants. So they opted to kill him just like they did the others. What do you think should happen to those who treated the owner's son this way? Right? It demands justice, right? I think that's the, the cry of the heart. I try to imagine a real-life scenario. Imagine for a moment you owned a very nice property that someone left you as an inheritance. It's a really nice place. It has several bedrooms. even has a guest house for visiting guests. It's a place that you would never be able to afford on your own in this lifetime. But since you inherited it, well, hey, it found its way into your possession. The problem is, is that it's located several states away and your family has no intention of moving because it's in a remote location. You decide that you can rent the property if you can find the right renters who are trustworthy. You go through the process and you personally handpick the perfect tenants. And they share that they love your property and they'll treat it just as if it were their own. They agree to all the details of the lease agreement and promise to pay their rent on time. And because of your grace and kindness to let them rent from you, they feel so undeserving. And for the first few years, they keep their word and are faithful to pay their rent on time. And from what you've gathered, they appear to maintain the place properly, which takes a great deal of work. You rejoice because it's a blessing to them and it's also a blessing to you. But then after a few years into your relationship, something radically changes. The rent check that you once received faithfully on the first of the month stops coming. But because of your established relationship and the equity that you have in in, in the, the recent years, you think little of it. But then it continues. The second month passes. The third month. The fourth month. And still no rent. All your calls and your messages are ignored. You decide to have a friend of yours who lives in the same state a few hours away, but he's willing to drive up and have a conversation with them. And you just ask, hey, what's going on? And can you, can you pay your landlord the rent? Not only do they scold him when he shows up for asking for the rent, but they assault him and they warn him never to come back again. I think we know where this goes. How do we progress? Well, you're going to call the authorities. You're going to send the authorities and let the police handle it, but your tenants lie to the police saying that they now own the property. And when the police officer asks to see the title to the property, they beat him and they kill him, and so you never hear back from the police. Interestingly, every authority you attempt to send from beyond this point is never heard back from again. So one day, you decide to go yourself to settle your account with your tenants. You want to clear up the matter. And surely you believe the people who were so fond of you before 
will explain the entire misunderstanding and repent of their misgivings and actions. But when you show up, they quickly surround you and start to curse you. They even ask you, who do you think you are? And they accuse you of being an ungracious landlord and taking advantage of them. And after beating you and cursing you, they drag you off the property that you own and they leave you for dead on the roadside. Brings it to life a little bit more, doesn't it? What do you think deserves to happen? Now that we have a grasp on the parable, this leads us to the punchline in verse 9 where Jesus asks a similar question. Look at the beginning of verse 9. Jesus asks, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And then Jesus answers the question. But in Matthew's gospel account, it is the leaders of Israel who answer Jesus by saying this in Matthew 21, 41. They said to him, And you can see them. They can't get the words out of their mouth fast enough. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Those tenants, how dare they? Many of the chief priests, scribes, and elders were very wealthy. In fact, it is more than probable that many of them owned or had ownership in vineyards. And that they had to deal with tenants much like those described in this parable. And they still have no idea that they are the tenants that Jesus is speaking about at this point. You remember another prophet who was sent, right? Those of you tracking with me, remember when Nathan was sent to King David? Right? After David was responsible for murder and adultery, Sending Uriah to the front line where he was killed. The husband of Bathsheba, right? We know the story. And Nathan the prophet is led to share a story about a man who acts unjustly and commits similar sins. And David this whole time is is just absolutely angered, right? And he says in his own words, that man deserves to die. And you recall what happens, right? Nathan says, David, you are that man. You are that man. And the punchline here functions in the same way. Jesus is saying, you are those tenants. And you have broken your lease agreement. You have left the Lord of the vineyard with no other choice. The owner had tried to work with the tenants time and time again, yet they refused to listen to him. And now because they have rejected his slaves and killed his son, he will come in wrath and destroy those who have taken what is his and give it to someone else. And so it is with the leaders of Israel. They have rejected every attempt God made to call them back to himself. They either abused or killed every messenger. Even John the Baptist provides recent evidence. And now they've determined in their hearts to destroy the very Son of God. 
Jesus was God's final messenger. When they rejected Him, they were saying no to God for the very last time. There was nothing left for them but judgment. And that judgment came in just a few short years, which we've shared before in previous sermons. The Jews witnessed firsthand the, the temple being destroyed, them being overtaken. The Jews rejected God and His Son, and they suffered the consequences of their decision. They rejected the grace of God and ultimately faced the judgment and the wrath of God. And this is how the punchline ends. And so when did the leaders in our passage finally understand that Jesus was talking about them? Okay, Still curious, right? It comes in the postscript. The postscript. The conclusion that comes in the final verses. And this is where I truly believe the Word of God pierced their souls. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus says, have you not even read this scripture? <laughs> Again, what a, what a greatly humbling question to ask professing experts of the law. Had a little zip to it, a little sting. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Here in the postscript, the metaphor changes from a vineyard to a building as Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, a passage quoted two other times outside of the parallel accounts in Acts 4.11 and another time in 1 Peter 2.7. The abrupt shift of the imagery is most likely facilitated by a pun on the words, Son and stone in the underlying Hebrew. The murdered son becomes the rejected stone. Judgment has already been pronounced on those who rejected the stone and who killed the son. Now the stone is exalted. God's son will be raised up again and he becomes the chief cornerstone. These verses in the cornerstone refer to the new temple not made with hands that will emerge because of Jesus' resurrection. And thus again, the judgment is going to fall on the religious leaders and it's directly linked to the coming destruction of the Jerusalem temple and vice versa. They're going to be held responsible for the destruction of two temples, right? Temple where Israel's worship was supposed to take and then Jesus destroyed this temple, right? They're going to be held responsible for both. Without question, as soon as Jesus said the words, the stone which the builders rejected, I think that word, rejected, okay, if we're just using whatever it is in the Hebrew, uh, excuse me, Greek, quotation in the Hebrew, but anyway, we don't need to split hairs there, but I, as soon as that word came off of his mouth, I'm telling you, rejection, they quickly identified with themselves. They did. And then he says, that stone, this became the chief cornerstone reference to himself now we're talking about the highest level of leadership in israel and jesus has just said i'm the chief in essence that's what he's saying i'm the chief and i that's i i believe it and i i can't prove it and maybe it was different for different 
at different points in the leadership, but I believe that that verse just pierced their hearts. Interestingly, Matthew's postscript provides more details for us because it was written predominantly to a Jewish audience, whereas Mark's audience was predominantly Gentile. In Matthew 21, 43, Jesus adds these words after quoting the rejection of the cornerstone, saying, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing the fruit of it. And all Israel's leaders said, ouch. The fruitless vineyard is no more. This is their eviction notice. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on them as leaders of Israel, saying, it's over. You're done. And how do they respond? Look at our final verse. And they were seeking to seize him. Literally, to lay their hands upon him. And it wasn't for praying. Okay? They wanted to lay their hands on him. They wanted to strangle him. They were enraged. And yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Listen, the religious leaders here in this instance, they might not have understand all that was happening when, as it relates to the Christological aspects, right, of Christ's death and resurrection, nor would they have understand, understood maybe even the prophetical aspect of the, the temple, right, being destroyed and Jesus becoming the, the, the new temple. But they certainly understood that they are being compared to unfaithful, murderous tenants who were falling under the judgment of God and that they were being evicted. J.C. Ryle shared this conclusion after meditating on this parable. Let us observe in the first place, or excuse me, in the last place, that men's consciences may be pierced and yet they may continue impenitent. The Jews to whom our Lord addressed the solemn historical parable which we have been reading saw clearly that it applied to themselves. They felt that they and their fathers were the husbandmen to whom the vineyard was entrusted and who ought to have rendered fruit to God. They felt that they and their forefathers were the wicked laborers who had refused to give the master of the vineyard his dues and had shamefully handled his servants, beating some and killing some. Above all, they felt that they themselves were planning the last crowning act of wickedness which the parable described. They were about to kill the well-beloved son and cast him out of the vineyard. All this they knew perfectly well. They knew that he had spoken the parable against them. Yet though they knew it, they would not repent. Though convicted by their own consciences, they were hardened in sin. What a contrast to King David's example that we observed earlier. Right? And, and we, we saw how David's heart respond. We even have a record of it. 
of his repentance in Psalm 32 and Psalm 31 or 51. And so it's a fair question. What example of repentance will people see in the vineyard of our lives? Will it be like David's, true and sincere? Or will it be like the leaders of Israel who only looked repentant on the outside, but inside the vineyard of their hearts, their worship was vain and unfruitful? May Jesus Christ and the gospel continue to bear much fruit in our lives as we live out before his eyes. May Christ be the Lord of our lips and the things that we say. May Christ be the Lord of our eyes and the things that we watch. May Christ be the Lord of our hands and the things that we touch. May Christ be the Lord of our feet and the places that we go. And may Christ be the Lord of our hearts and the fruit that it bears. All for his glory. Amen, church? Amen. Pray with me. God of grace, we bow our head again, um, feeling the weight of this passage. I know uh, my heart has wrestled with it all this week. And I, I, without question, I imagine that there are many hearts in this room that can feel the weight of the judgment. And it is, it is weighty, as it should be. It, it should, Father, expose... Um, First of all, the, the leaders of our church should take special attention as we consider uh, the, the temptation and the opportunities to live lives of hypocrisy. Father, we pray that you would protect our elders and our pastors, our care group leaders, and everyone who serves in leadership from living double lives. Double lives and double lies. They're wicked. The wicked temptation. Would you protect us from such things. And Father, as it relates to our entire church family, that our worship in the vineyard of your church would be true and sincere, that our hearts would be captivated by Christ's lordship and his authority. And just as I shared in those closing comments, that he would indeed be Lord over our lips and guard us from gossip, guard us from a critical spirit and saying things that we should not say that he would be Lord of our eyes and that we would commit what we watch and what we witness to his lordship and his authority to govern our lives and protect us from so many things that plague, whether that's advertisements, commercials, shows, movies, the internet, whatever it is, we want to see your authority prevail. We pray, Father, that the same would be true of our hands and of our feet, what we would touch and where we would go. Then all of it would be reflected by your glory and by your authority in our lives so that we can, can, we can magnify you and give you true worship in the vineyard. It's a great privilege for us to gather corporately as a church to rally around the foundation of Christ and all that he means to us. And yet, life involves so many hours outside the week, and we pray, Father, that you would continue to grow us faithfully. 
Allow us when we come week in and week out to receive the, the messages from the messengers that you have for us, whether that's from my lips or from any other man that would stand behind the pulpit. And let us respond in faithfulness. Help us to be obedient to you. Help us to give you maximum glory. We cry out for your help. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for forgiveness of sins and the gospel. We thank you for your kindness that leads us to repentance. And we pray that it would continue in all of our lives. And Father, I pray for those who have not yet repented and who have not turned from their unbelief, that today they would turn and see their need, that you are a holy God who will condemn the unrighteous, that everyone that has not confessed Christ and placed all their faith and all their trust and hope in him will perish. But if they turn and they ask for forgiveness, you'll grant it. If they'll surrender their lives to you and to your lordship, they will have life and they will have liberty and they will have the privilege to pursue holiness. What a blessing. I pray that your will for everyone that can hear the sound of my voice and for those of us who have responded to the gospel, we praise you for your ongoing work. Thank you again, and we pray all this in the name of your Son. Amen.